All right, let's take our Bibles and go to Romans chapter 1. We are in part 5 of our series on the existence of God. And we'll read Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse number 19 and 20. And then we're going to look at a special topic today, the topic of evolution and Darwinism. This is something that almost always comes up when you have an extended discussion about the existence of God. People a lot of times end up at the, at the, at the curbside to say, what about evolution? So we're going to look at that this morning, but before that, let's take a look at Romans 1. It kind of gives us a framework of really who the burden of proof is on when it comes to belief in God. Romans chapter one in verse 19. The Bible says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since what? The creation of the world in the things that have been made so They are without excuse. So the word of God here says that God has made his existence so clear just in the created order. Now this is even outside of having divine revelations such as the Bible, prophets, miracles, uh, prophetic things saying this is going to happen at a certain time and boom it happens. Even after the prophet has died like really, really miraculous stuff. The Bible is saying that God has created created the order in such a way that we can look at it and conclude from that that there is a creator. So the Bible does tell us also in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, prove, or you could translate this word, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Now, here's something that if you haven't noticed, in our culture today, there are a lot of competing ideas. Right? I mean, we have secularism, radical Islam, materialism, partyism. That's pretty much a worldview. Old school, they used to call it hedonism, like just do that. There, there's Nietzschean power living, whether it's in politics or finance, to say I'm going to try to get power for power's sake and power's sake alone because I know how to rule. That's the will to power. That's old school atheistic philosophy. So there's all sorts of of competing worldviews today. So what we're going to look at, we're going to just say, look at the down low of Darwinism. And we have uh, more than we could deal with today. There's so much that we did not deal with because we just don't have time. But if you have internet access right now, you can go and this entire presentation is online for the message today. You can download it and send us an email if you have questions or if you just disagree. But here we go. Getting into the claims of Darwinism and evolution. Now, before we do that, we kind of have to define what do we mean by evolution. And there's pretty much two types. One would be microevolution. Microevolution. That would be like variations within existing species or kinds of animals. Then on the other hand, you've got macroevolution. That's pretty much from the goo to the zoo to you, all right? So, so when we talk about evolution with our friends or colleagues, we need to be very careful to define what we mean by evolution. Now, what we're going to see today is that there is substantive evidence for microevolution. We'll look at some examples of that. And already I see some uh, shirt collars are catching on fire. 
But before you get mad, let's look at the evidence. But we're going to see through this talk that there is not substantive evidence for macroevolution. And then at the end, we're going to look at this. Uh, and if you're, if you're a skeptic or an atheist here this morning, not a believer in God, or you did, you, you're not sure if the scriptures are true, I'm genuinely glad, and we're genuinely glad that you're here. And we don't just say that. We are so excited that you've chosen to go through the journey with us and and examining these questions of existence. But here's a little rock I want to place into your shoe. That even if there were to be evidence for macroevolution, even if we don't believe or teach theistic evolution at Rocky Mount Baptist Church, but we're just going to go on a logical beeline right now, even if there were to be evidence, that does not automatically lead to atheism. It does not automatically lead to atheism. It would actually point to God, now go with me on this, for the chances of non-life producing life. We tracking? And we're talking there is nothing alive. That producing life, the chances of that are so small so minuscule that it's literally in the realm of miracles in terms of probabilities. I want everybody to track with that before we go any further. If there were to be evidence for macroevolution, if it was from the goo to the zoo to you, the chances of believing that is the same in terms of probability than if you believe in supernatural miracles. So even if you're talking with a person who's an ardent Darwinist or a macroevolutionist and they will not budge from their position, you can logically use this line to say, I will concede the entire debate over evolution to you. And if you say macroevolution is true, then what you're actually saying is that there had to be something supernatural. There had to be something miraculous to bring life from non-life. And what do you have to have in order for something supernatural to occur? You have to have a supernatural being. You have to have, a.k.a. God. So even if, and we don't believe or teach that here, if there is evidence for macroevolution, it's actually an argument for the existence of God as opposed to against the existence of God. So here's uh, Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist in the English-speaking world, and we've referenced him several times throughout this series, and here's what he says, Uh, and actually before we do that, let me just take a popcorn survey. How many of you would say at this point in your life you doubt that macroevolution from the goo to the zoo to you is actually true? Can I see your hands? We can be honest. If you are are Darwinist, okay. All right, this next quote is for you morons. He says, quote, It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Another one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, scientist Daniel Dennett says, quote, to put it bluntly but fairly, anyone today who doubts that the variety on this planet was produced by a process of evolution is simply ignorant, inexcusably ignorant. And in one of his writings, he said that we should at least hold on to the Baptists in the future to put them in some type of a museum. And I was like, thank you, Dr. Dennett. So that is the new atheist approach to if you actually have doubts about macroevolution. 
And you may want to jot this name down and do a little Googling. Alvin Plantinga, this is a Christian philosopher, an analytic philosopher. The Lord used him in 1974 to rock the entire academic philosophical establishment. They said back in the 70s, you could hardly find a major university with a philosopher with a PhD who also believed in God. But we don't have time to get into the argument. But Plantinga developed an argument that undercut atheism in 74 to today, you can go to even state universities, secular state universities, and find people that are willing not only to entertain the thought that there could be a God, but say there's actually good philosophical arguments for it. So here's what Plantinga said about Dawkins and Dennett, saying that a lot of us here this morning are stupid, ignorant, or insane. He said, quote, Note that you don't have to reject evolution in order to qualify as inexcusably ignorant. All you have to do is harbor a doubt or two. So we're going to examine the evidence. What is the evidence out there? Well, as far as microevolution, we said that that's change within existing species or kinds of animals. And an illustration of this would be dogs. Um, the Labrador Retriever, I think, continues to be the most popular dog in America. You've got different types of dogs. You have Labrador Retrievers, Lab Puppies, and everybody said, oh. Not only that, you've got monsters such as Great Danes. And then you've got the most fearsome predator known on the planet, a chihuahua. <laughs> and if you've ever met one, uh, you know exactly what I mean. That's scary. Let's just go to the next slide. Now here's, here's the point. That God very well could, in the, in the beginning, created like a wolf dog of some type. And we know that even with purebred dogs today, purebred dogs, that they have more health problems because they have less um, DNA, less ability to deal with that. Whereas if you have a mutt, often they have less health problems because they've got more genetic material to be able to um, handle diseases and whatnot. But the point here is that there's still a dog kind of animal as opposed to macroevolution, which literally says at a point billions of years ago, the earth was a molten ball of lava and then the rocks cooled, water condensated, and from that you eventually get humans. Those are two absolutely different philosophies. There is evidence, if you even want to use the term evolution, for microevolution. You can just say changes within existing kinds. We do that with animals. We breed animals to get uh, certain results. But there's not evidence for the other. But here's how evolution is pretty much popularized today. You guys have seen the X-Men, right? And the premise of the X-Men, whether it's Wolverine and Hugh Jackman's massive muscles that are making this argument or whether it's all of the x-men the premise of that movie of that comic is that genetic replication um, or what you could say mutations actually cause benefits within the living organism but what we actually know from science is that mutations over 99.5 percent of all mutations result in serious harm for the organism it is not as the x-men show even though i know there's some middle schoolers in here that would love to be able to be like wolverine sorry but that's just not reality what is reality is we have an example of a regular fly and then a fly that's been experimented on. Have any of you ever read about this? The flies that have been nuked and nuked and nuked and then they grow four wings to where they can't even fly. You talk about a hit on your, I mean, on your self-esteem. You're named a fly and you can't, I mean, you just named a waddle now. They can't even fly. 
And, and often, this is so interesting, when you're talking about evolution and Darwinism, people will use these examples to say, well, we, we can have change. Well, notice it's still a fly, or maybe it's a squat. But the process of change involved intelligent designers, right? It was in the laboratory. There were scientists who did these things methodically and on purpose. They were intentionally altered by intelligent scientists. So people who would point to these examples and say, this is evidence of macroevolution, that's called a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Their conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. And then there's the question about the superbugs. People say, well, what about bacteria and viruses that develop resistance to drugs and to antibodies? Now, this is where I think a lot of this discussion hinges upon. The fact that superbugs can develop resistance to antibiotics and so forth, that does, as Jonathan Wells says, that does nothing to affect the morphological shape of the organism. I'll quote this to you. This is from his book, Icons of Evolution. Jonathan Wells says, since biochemical mutations such as those leading to antibiotic resistance and sickle cell anemia do not affect an organism's shape or structure, Evolution needs beneficial mutations that affect morphology. How many of you, if you can, can admit that in church, if you're secure in who you are, how many of you ever watched the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers back in the 90s? All right, we have secure people here. I was a teenager and I watched it, so I have confessed. The, morph, the word morphe actually comes from the Greek language. It means form. So what he's saying here is that even if you get superbugs that can develop resistance to antibiotics and so forth, it doesn't affect this, the, the organism's morphology. And think about all of the, the changes you've got to go from, from the goo to the zoo to you. Think about it. It is astronomical. But yet, when we look at the fossil record, um, we don't find that. And here's what Richard Dawkins says. Um, Danny, we got the sound ready to go. I want to kind of set this video up here. This is Richard Dawkins again, asked if he can point to an instance to where a mutation has added information to the genome. This is right under a two-minute clip, and it's absolutely awesome. Can you give an example of a genetic mutation or, or, or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? Wait for it. Can you just stop while I think? I'm recording. Okay. There's a popular misunderstanding of evolution which says that uh, fish turned into reptiles and reptiles turned into mammals and, and so somehow we ought to be able to look around the world today and look and look at our ancestors. We ought to be able to, to see the intermediates between fish and reptiles and between reptiles and mammals. We ought to be able to see fish kind of on the way to becoming reptiles. But of course that's not the way it is at all. Fish are modern animals. They're just as modern as we are. They're descended from ancestors, which we're descended from. Way back 300 million years ago there would have been an ancestor which was the ancestor of modern fish and the ancestor of, uh, of modern, modern humans. And that ancestor, if you could have been there then, you could have seen the first steps towards a fish, uh, say, coming out onto the, onto the land. 
and, be, and becoming, um, becoming a, something like an amphibian. But that was a long time ago. You wouldn't expect to see that today. And so uh, uh, quite a lot of the misunderstanding of evolution, I suppose, I suppose, stems from the fact that people are looking at modern animals and thinking that Darwin has said we're descended from them. Well, we're not. We're not descended from, from modern fish. We're not descended from modern monkeys. We're not descended from modern apes. They are modern animals just as we are. They are our cousins. They're not our ancestors. Get all that? If you listen closely, the catchphrase was, if you had been there, you would have seen. That sounds curiously a lot like us. In the beginning, I wasn't there, right? We weren't there, but we know someone who was, God, saying, if you had been there, it sounds a lot like faith. Dawkins has written many books um, against religion in general, um, pro-atheism, and here is his critique of, of design. He says, the natural temptation is to attribute appearance of design to actual design itself. The temptation is a false one because the designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem of who designed the designer. The most ingenious and powerful explanation so far discovered is Darwinian evolution by natural selection. Therefore, God almost certainly does not exist. Now notice, this is his argument. This is the professor of the public understanding of science from Oxford University saying that the reason why we cannot attribute fine-tuning to a designer is because who designed the designer. We're getting to that question next week. But that's called a way to get out of the problem. To say just because we can't explain, or so he says, the existence of the designer, then therefore we can't explain why these things are fine-tuned. So he simply says that it's the appearance of design. He says also that biology is the study of complex things that appear to have been designed for a purpose, and he has a book called The Blind Watchmaker in, in which he argues that you don't need to postulate a designer in order to understand life or anything in the universe. And here is his conclusion. He says the cumulative process is directed by non-random survival. Directed. Directed. We still tracking? Here's a question. If there is no guiding intelligence at all, then how does the organism know it's supposed to survive? We'll look at some examples here for that. The concept of irreducible complexity. One example would be if you were to look in a microscope, you would see what's called a bacterial flagellum. And it basically has a tail that acts as an outboard motor. For those of you who are fisher men, women, it's designed pretty much just like an outboard motor to the point that they say, scientists have told us that it has 100,000 rotations per minute, but yet it can stop in three quarters of a turn and rotate back to full power. Your average lawnmower has about 3,000 rotations per minute, so that kind of gives you an idea on the speed. If you tried to do that with something that we designed, you would absolutely strip out every gear that you had in the machine. So when we look at the molecular level, we find that you couldn't have this function if it just had a few of the parts. 
It has to have all of the parts at once in order to function. So if everything came about as the result of random evolution, then how did it start out to begin with if it had to add parts, but yet if it can't have all of its parts, it can't function at all? Very interesting question. And illustrations have been used the same as a mousetrap. If you have several of the pieces of a mousetrap, it will not work. But if you have all of them at once, it will work. In a hammer, spring, holding bar, catch platform, and then maybe that's awesome. Come on, you'll get yourself a mouse or a rat. Another example would be the human eye. The anatomy of the eye is absolutely incredible. Um, we're, we're told that the eye has uh, hundreds of thousands of nerve innings, and I don't know how they... I mean, you'd say, hold still, let me count. But that's what science tells us, that it's absolutely incredible how fine-tuned the eye is for seeing. And here's a statement by Charles Darwin himself, and I quote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possible have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. That's from Darwin. Another example would be here the unintelligent natural selection, that if natural selection is what drives life, then how does natural selection know what to plan for? How does it know what to do? In Darwin's day, the human cell, for example, was kind of considered to be just a little piece of, of jello. They weren't able to study it. But today, we know that the human cell is incredibly, incredibly designed. And what we know now is that DNA exists. In Darwin's day, they had no knowledge of DNA. These are a few snapshots for those of you with photographic memories. From, this is from a textbook that DNA is absolutely a code to the point that there's RNA, which is able to read the coded message that is carried by the DNA. So it's almost like the DNA has a little transport system, a little UPS, carrying packages. And when those packages arrive, the RNA unzips it and sees what the instructions are, and the genome or the organism follows accordingly. It's amazing the level of design found in DNA. And not only that, but basically RNA is the negative, if you go old school film, some of you still have the old school film cameras, and for those of you, continue to rock on. But it's the RNA, it basically is the negative of the true picture, which is DNA. Lee Strobel says this, there is six feet of DNA coiled inside every one of our body's 100 trillion cells that contains a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out precise assembly instructions for all the proteins from which our bodies are made. Just let that sink in and ask yourself the question, am I willing to take the leap of faith to say that that came about as the result of random chance and accident? Paul and John Feinberg say that humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. On those chromosomes, there are about, there are some more than 100,000 genes. I don't know if they're Levi genes or Gap genes, but that's a lot of genes. And here's some old school Bill Gates with the large bifocals. Here's what Bill Gates says about DNA. This is, by the way, Windows when they originally launched. He said, quote, DNA is a, like a software program, only much more complex than we've ever devised. Now, I've never written a program. I'm not a computer programmer, but I would say that Bill Gates knows a little bit about programming. I'm gonna go out on a limb. And so if Bill Gates says that DNA is far more advanced than any complex system that they've devised, I think that's a probing question to where we need to ask this. 
When we look at biological organisms, are intelligent, comprehensible messages self-written? In other words, when we find information, do we come to the conclusion that that information got there on its own? Secondly, did Darwin have the same level of knowledge of DNA in the human cell in the 1800s as we do today? And everybody said, no. Third, what is the most plausible explanation of the orderly arrangement of information found in DNA? Randomness or intelligent design? Number four, how could such a detailed process continue throughout repeated generations if randomness governs the universe? Because really all you've got to have is one bad generation and the goo that is somewhere between goo and the zoo, when it has a bad generation, it dies and then maybe you can start over, maybe not. But then again, even if it happened, it's evidence for miraculous occurrence, not atheism. At this point, many evolutionists and Darwinists often say, well, what we find is that all living things on earth use the same genetic code. So therefore, all living things have a common ancestor. That does not need to be the case at all. Why couldn't it be that all things have a common designer? Right? What leads us to say that they all have a common ancestor? And here's one of the biggest problems, even if you accept the, um, I guess we could say, the millions of years and the different layers, we're going to go with that and concede that part of the argument for this reason, to say even if you believe this, in the Cambrian layer, they say is around uh, 600 uh, million years ago, even if you believe that, here's a problem. Guess what scientists have found all across the world in the Cambrian layer? They've found animals of all sorts that are not supposed to be there. So here's what Stephen Jay Gould said. He was an agnostic Jew who passed away a few years ago, was a famous Harvard evolutionist. Here's what he said. He said, the fossil record doesn't show gradual change. And every paleontologist has known that ever since Cuvier. So Darwin, in his time, he said, all right, We've got this idea that everything came through successive layers and successive generations, but we haven't found it. But think about how many changes you have to go from and go through to account for all of the animals we have today and all the extinct animals. You would think that throughout the fossil layers, we couldn't scratch a rock without finding absolute intermediate species. So Darwin thought that time would fix the problem, but time hasn't fixed the problem. Even people who say there are, there's so few examples and those are highly contested. So then we ask the question to say, why are not every one of these geological strata filled with intermediate forms? Evolutionists have seen the problem. So here is Harvard evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould's solution to the problem. He said there's something that would In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady formation of its transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once fully formed. Time out. What he's saying is that we're probably not going to find intermediate species in the fossil layer, but let me just do a little bit of hoopla, a little bit of abracadabra, and say that the animals gave birth to another kind of animal. Bro, as we said in third grade, it's a free country, but for a platypus to give birth to a rabbit, 
You can believe that if you want to. And here's something that we, we found from science as well. The Cambrian explosion in that Cambrian layer refers to the great quantity and diversity of life found in what is called the Cambrian layer of the geologic column. Now question again, how do you have all of the animals in one layer if they were supposed to have been formed successively over millions of years? And here's what Peter Ward said. He said, if there was ever evidence suggesting divine creation, surely the Precambrian and Cambrian transition known from numerous localities across the face of the earth, it is. So for those of you that are very, you're very scholarly, you enjoy reading books and the footnotes, you've probably seen the movie Dumb and Dumber. And I'm not trying to make, if, you, if you're a skeptic here this morning, I'm not trying to make fun of you, but I'm, I'm telling you, at this point, if you continue to hold on to the belief that animals simply had transitional forms and they just appeared out of nowhere, that sounds almost... That sounds almost like Dumb and Dumber when he says, do I have a shot? And she's like, well, and he's, he's like, well, is it, gonna, is it something like one out of a hundred? And she said, it's more like one out of a million. And then Jim Carrey turns around and he says, so you're telling me there's a chance, <laughs> right? It's that same thing with all of the evidence pointing to, boy, you really have to stretch your mind to believe that this stuff came about from chance, that it's almost like we just need to take our faith badge or the blue ribbon of faith and pin it onto the lapel of the atheist and say, bro, you have far more faith than I ever could to believe what you believe. So at Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, we don't believe or teach theistic evolution, but for the purposes of debate, we kind of entertain that thought. And even if everything that we said to this point was totally wrong, and there is evidence for macroevolution, then you're talking about the probabilities that would literally be in the realm of miracles. And in order for a miracle to exist, God must exist. Again, we don't believe or teach theistic evolution, but for those who want to be very adamant about this issue, it's at that point that faith comes in. And the conclusion here would be Blaise Pascal, a famous philosopher, said, people most invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. And with all of this evidence and all of this argumentation, at the end of the day, if we can be very honest, if you're here with us this morning or for those who are listening on the radio or podcast, you say, you know what, I really, if I could be honest and kind of open the door to my heart, I really just want to do whatever the heck I want to do. And I don't want God, my parents, my husband, wife, preacher, anybody to tell me, you just need to bug off, and I want to do what I want to do. You see, if we could be very honest, the reason why a lot of us are like in Paul and in the book of Acts to when he was explaining to this king the gospel, and the king said, I am almost persuaded. I'm almost persuaded. For some of us, if we could be very honest, the reason why we're almost persuaded is because there's something in our life that we just don't want to give up. There's some level of control that we're not willing to say, God, here are the keys to my life. And what we've seen in this, in this, I think, this series so far is that most atheism is not intellectual in nature, it's moral in nature. 
Absolutely, we love people. That's the reason why we're going through this series, to address these intellectual questions and evidence and science and philosophy and so forth. But at the end of the day, we're not just walking, reasoning machines. We are made up of memories. We're made up of past events. We're made up of failures. We've made up of people who've hurt us in the past. And that's what brings us to today. But the beautiful news about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus can change the heart. Jesus can take the past, he can, clean, he can cleanse the heart from the inside out. Jesus is the one who can make us brand new. Listen, you are not, and I am not the result of random chance. You are not just a collection of particles. You've been made in the image of God, and God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place. So if you place your faith and trust in him, you could truly live. You could be forgiven of your sin. You could live for something greater than yourself. There is something governing the universe. It's not random evolution. It is God, the intelligent designer, who made himself clear. This is who I am by Jesus Christ. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. We see all that Jesus did, and we look back on our lives and see how could I really, if we're being honest, maybe some of us, how could God have left me alive to this point knowing what I've done? It's because God's mercy extends to generations, thousands upon thousands upon thousands. God's mercy is the reason why we're here. So the question right now is if you're not yet willing to surrender your life to God, it may be that you don't have any questions about atheism at all, none of that. You're good. You say, I believe there was a design. God is the designer. I don't believe in macroevolution, but I've just not yet handed my life over to God. This is the time. This is the time to commit and say, God, it's no more balking. It's no more almost being persuaded. I know in my hearts of hearts, intellectual arguments aside, I know that you're real. And even if I'm not sure on some days that you can actually forgive me in faith right now, I'm not just going to believe that you're there. I'm going to believe that you can change me and that you can forgive me. Let's bow our heads as we come to this time of of invitation. As our worship team is coming to prepare to sing a song called, Come Just As You Are. In this moment right now, I want to ask you, if you were to die today, and you stood before God and gave an account of your life, would you be innocent or guilty? Would you be innocent or guilty? If God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And if the answer goes to something that you've done, then you're not a worshiper of Jesus. You're a worshiper of yourself. And Jesus came to give us life and to give us life in abundance so that we could be set free from the chains of having to try to do the impossible task of being good enough. In this moment right now, in faith, look to Jesus and give him your life. Look in faith to Jesus and say, I know that I can't be good enough. I know that only you are. Please save me, Jesus.